Yeah, I'm all over the place in more ways than one. Yeah. I actually became a Christian at Stonely Bible Week. Yeah, yeah. So I went along to the first one in 1991. I'd just turned uh, 18. I went for all the wrong reasons. And uh, I won't go into any details, but um, Jesus saved me. And um, I came back, born again, came back in a new creation in Jesus. And um, uh, my mum was a Christian. She'd been praying for me. But I'd been such a clown up to that point. Her response was, oh, how long is this going to last? It's literally what she confessed years later. That's what she thought when I told her I'd become a Christian. But when Jesus saves you, he gets you for good. Amen. Yeah, so, yeah, get along. I look forward to seeing you at the More Together Festival. Okay, so uh, today we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah uh, as we prepare for the, the special offering um, after I speak and, you know, just thinking together today as a church about, I really want us to think together about our love, God's love for the city, and I want us to think about our heart, our heart for the city, and Jonah's such a fantastic book to look at when it comes to that, because it's really funny, um, but also really penetrating. So um, I'm sure we, there'll be a couple of moments where you look and you go, does it really say that? <laughs> because the Bible is, um, the Bible is no, no holds barred, and um, that's one of the things we love about God's Word. It doesn't, it doesn't protect you from the flaws of people. It doesn't just tell you about the good bits about the characters in the Bible. It shows you the full picture which then enables you to look at those characters and go, well, look, if God loves them, maybe he loves me. If God can work in their life, maybe he can work in my life. And Jonah's almost a prime example of that. Now, when we think about Nineveh, Nineveh and Norwich don't have that much in common. Because Nineveh's where Jonah was sent to. Nineveh was famous for its violence. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, uh, back in the day, hundreds of years BC, but it was famous for its violence. I won't go into detail for some of you. It would be too much to hear what they were famous for, but it was, uh, it, that's really what its reputation was. Whereas Norwich is what? Norwich is a... <laughs> As everyone keeps telling me, and all the billboards, Norwich is a fine city. So there's not loads in common between Norwich and Nineveh. They're both big me then. That's maybe as profound as it gets. But they are a similar size, interestingly enough. So Nineveh had over 120,000. Norwich has got about 145,000, apparently, according to the internet. There you go. Must be true. Um, but in, a, in another sense, actually, there's, there's something that we find particularly in the book of Jonah about God's heart for cities. Um, and it's not that God loves cities more than towns or villages, but I think there's something about cities that can create quite extreme reactions. I live in London. People either love it or they hate it. People that come to London as students either start a countdown from the day they arrive, a three-year countdown to when they can leave, or they land in London and they go, this is what I've always dreamed of. I love it here. I want to live here forever. It has kind of, cities can do that. They can create extreme reactions in people. And um, we're going to look at Jonah's chapter 3 and 4 in just a moment. But in chapters 1 and 2, even if you're new to Christianity, even if you're not that familiar with the Bible, you probably know a little bit about the story of Jonah. He was a Jew, a Jewish prophet. God said, go to Nineveh. He went in the opposite direction, not because he was scared. Some of the children's Bibles make out Jonah was scared. It wasn't that. It's much uglier than that. We'll look at that in just a moment. And he went in the opposite direction. He's on a boat. And a 
God whips up a storm and, you know, he's, a, he's asleep below deck. Everyone's panicking, praying to their gods. And um, he confesses. He knows why. He knows what the storm's about. He knows he's in rebellion. He says, it's me. I said, what, what are we going to do? He says, just chuck me over. He's like, no. And they do their best, these sailors, to try and save Jonah's life and sort things out. But Jonah's like, no, this is what it's about. Until you throw me over, this storm's not stopping. Wow. They throw him over. God ordains a huge fish to swallow him. And this is extraordinary kind of repentance moment with Jonah. He sinks, he's sinking down to the bottom of the sea and he's, the cords of death entangling him. This, this awareness of, what have I done? The mortality, the shortness of life, what, what deep reflection in God. And then this bizarre rescue, this fish swallows him and vomits him out on the land and then Jonah begins to slow walk east to Nineveh. So let's, uh, let's pick the story up there in uh, Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to that Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So the previous message had essentially been this. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Right? So Jonah rose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Now we're going to pause there. I want to read chapter 4 in just a moment where it gets really humorous. (laughs) In chapter 3, I just want to just draw your attention to something here that is, if you think about it, may, may be quite surprising. Jonah went into the city and preached judgment, and the result was mercy. Have you ever noticed that? He doesn't actually preach mercy. He preaches judgment. But God, by his Spirit, turns their hearts. This awful kind of reverence and sense of what have we done comes upon These people comes upon the city. Even the king takes off his robe. This nation is not a nation that was even used to worshipping the true God, the real God. They would have had their own man-made idols, what they worshipped. This is an extraordinary moment. Here comes a prophet walking through the city, proclaiming judgment, and God showers that place with mercy. And there's a really interesting relationship between judgment and mercy. It's a really delicate relationship. 
Because there's nothing wrong with judgment. We use that word really negatively. We, we don't like it. We talk about judgment. It, it brings up ideas of judgmental people. and We don't like all of that. Actually, judgment just means justice. It's really what it means. It's about the execution of justice. It means, it means you're going to put right the things that have gone wrong. And to the Jewish mind in these days, judgment was a, was a, it was a, a very positive idea. They loved the idea of judgment because in their mind, when judgment comes, God is going to deliver us from all those people who are persecuting us and are against us and oppressing us. Judgment for us is like every wrong being made right. And so even though he's preaching judgment, it's not a wrong thing he's preaching. He's come to this city that is full of vile evil and violence. And he's saying, God's going to deal with you. Actually, there's nothing wrong with that. Funny how no one said amen. We, we are nervous around this theme of judgment and justice because even though we kind of like it, because if someone wrongs me, I want justice, I kind of don't like it because sometimes I do wrong and I'd rather be let off. And so it creates this tension inside of us. The beauty of the gospel is, is that God is able through the crucifixion of Jesus to maintain absolute justice. Will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? Yes, he will. He will not leave any wrong unrighted. And at the cross, we see ultimate justice as God deals with all of the darkness and the sin in the, of the world through the suffering of his own son. But we also see at the cross, mercy triumphs over justice. The mercy of God is able to reach in our lives. Why? Because as we heard earlier, those things that were getting in the way, the sins, the darkness and all of that, is absorbed in the body of Christ willingly so that we can go free with God's justice still being upheld. How about that? I'm glad one of you said amen. How about that? Because you see, if it's just mercy and justice is compromised, then God's no longer just. That's a huge problem. That's a problem. If you ever see a crime situation or a court situation and the judge says, oh, don't worry about it, it's fine. Or, Hold on a minute. This person's guilty. You just said it's fine. Mercy and no justice. That's no good. But if it's just justice, then the person who is guilty, well, justice has been done, but they're in trouble. Through the gospel, God is able to be both, the Bible says, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's an extraordinary message. And I want to just provoke you before we get into the heart of today's message. I just want to provoke you. As a Christian, don't be squeamish about judgment and justice. Because sometimes we just preach mercy, but no one gets a chance to realize there's a problem. And then when they become a Christian, they think they're doing God a favor. Because they didn't realize there's a problem. There's a huge problem. It's called the Ten Commandments. It's a huge problem. We're lawbreakers. It's a huge problem. God is holy, and we are not. It's massive. And we don't like to kind of be negative and talk about such things, but until you do, the cross makes no sense. And when you do, and you begin to face the reality of the problem, that even the most so-called righteous or good person, when faced with the holiness and the majesty of God, 
the Bible says every mouth will be silenced. In fact, the Bible, speaking of God's holiness, talks about his throne from whose presence earth and heaven flee. Such is his majesty. His majesty is so glorious, we're told, that at his return, those who have not got right with him will cry out for the hills and the mountains to cover them, rather that, rather be crushed by a mountain than face the glory of God. There's a huge problem. Do not be deceived. And then when you see the cross and you see God himself deals with the problem, that the eternal son takes on flesh and willingly lives in this broken world and faces every temptation and resists it and then willingly lays down his life and willingly absorbs punishment for sin and willingly faces down the accuser of our souls and deals with powers of darkness for us and then rises from the dead in glory and majesty and victory, then we all go, we want to worship Jesus. Amen. Because we get, we get absorbed in him through faith. And we leave our sin and brokenness and shame and guilt at the foot of the cross. And we are given robes of righteousness. And we're ringers put on our finger. And we are embraced by the love of the Father. And we are called children of God through no good deeds of our own, but by the work of Jesus Christ. Ooh. And then we can live with our heads held high and with a clean conscience and know that we're right with God. Know that God, if God accepts us who we are, I can stand before anyone. Amen. Oh, this is the gospel. This is the message that we love. Never be squeamish about justice and judgment, but always make sure as you proclaim justice and judgment, you proclaim this, mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. Then we're serving, we're representing God faithfully and we're serving people well. So that when people are standing there worshiping God, they're not deep down thinking, I'm not, what did he do for me anyway? They're really thinking, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I've seen my wretchedness. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And you sing it and you know what it means. Amen. If you've never known it, God has done the work so you can get right with him freely today. You can leave here a new creation. Amen. Hallelujah. Number four, chapter four. So God's just had mercy on this city. This is just cringingly bad, what happens next. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord. He said, oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? See, back in chapter one, there's no dialogue between Jonah and God. We just know that he ran away. We just says, God said, go and do that. Jonah rose to flee. But actually, we realize before that and that, there's a dialogue that happens. Jonah says something to God. And now we get a window back there, what happened when he was first called. He said, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What a nuisance. I knew you were like that. Therefore now, O oh Lord, because you're like that, just take my life from me. It's better for me to die than live. And the Lord said, you're right. <laughs> do you do well to be angry? Is everything all right, Jonah? Jonah, can we just hold up a bit of a mirror? Look at your face, Jonah. 
What's the matter with you? So Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. Anyone ever done DIY soul killing? Anyone? Oh, mate. I hate DIY. I literally have to pray before I do any DIY because there's this like curse over me with it. I'm joking. <laughs> but it's like that. It's like if I've not prayed, I'm in trouble because it's cold sweats from like 10 seconds in. You know, when the other person, when someone else uses this screwdriver, it fits. When I use it, it's automatically the wrong size, no matter which one I choose. Right, this is sulky DIY. He made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. This is, this is great. There he is, sat under his little thing he's made, looking. Now, this is also really funny if you think about it, right? The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be as such, so rubbish was his own booth. <laughs> it was so badly built. God was like, oh my goodness me, right? Give him a plant. Give him a plant. So it might be a shade over his head. Because he's already said he made a booth to give him some shade. And then we're told God made a plant to give him some shade. Because there were too many gaps in his silly booth <laughs> to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. It's just a disaster, isn't it? The life of the prophet. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than live. I sometimes feel like that when I'm doing DIY. But God said to Jonah, same question. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yeah, I do well enough to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, will you pity the plant for which you didn't labor, you didn't make it grow, and it came into being in a night and perished in a night? Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. An interesting way to end a book in the Bible. <laughs> Doesn't even say amen, it's cattle. Now, I want to just dig into this, because it is funny, but there's some really penetrating stuff in here. The reality is this, is that Jonah had some really bad attitudes. Probably hated the Ninevites. They were foreign power ungodly. He didn't want God to show mercy on them. He hated them. Now, we live in a society that has become expert at what is known as virtue signaling. Anyone know what that is? I will read you a definition from the dictionary of virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is the public expression of opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or social conscience or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. So we, because everyone's terrified of being cancelled or terrified of being publicly shamed or whatever, we live in a society that's an experts on virtual, vir, virtue signaling, which basically means you constantly want everyone else to know how good you are, how you have all the right attitudes, how you're not deep down 
a sexist or how you're not deep down a racist or how you're not deep down prejudiced about this or prejudiced about that or how you're not deep down a bigger or how you're not deep down a hypocrite. Whereas the problem is most of us deep down are most of those things. Sorry, folks. All of us carry and struggle with attitudes that we are ashamed of. Am I right? No one dares say yes. <laughs> we carry things. We struggle with things. We, we don't love as we should. We're way more like Jonah than we would begin to admit, I think. Because I have prayed for revival, like what happened here in Nineveh. I've prayed for God to move in power. But if I was to really allow the Lord to search my heart and ask me how much of that has come out of compassion and how much of that has come out of other things, I wonder what the breakdown would be. Jonah had a small heart. I can relate to Jonah. I get angry about things that are daft. Anyone else? I get bothered by things and I think, I can't believe I'm this bothered by this, but I am. You see, and, and God, God wants to speak to Jonah and say, there's something wrong here. Do you do well to be angry? There's something wrong here. But we're experts, you know, if you're, if you're here in the state and you're English, particularly if you're from the South, we're experts at covering it over and being polite and being nice. Passive aggression. It normally comes out when people are driving. Driving or board games. It's when the lid is lifted and what people are really thinking. And I, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry if this makes some of you feel bad or even defensive or on the back foot. I'm not, I'm not on the moral high ground here, okay? I am, I am, I am Jonah. Yeah? I struggle with this. I find things in my heart and I think, oh, God, have mercy. I'm a pastor. God, have mercy. Something happens and it triggers an attitude in your heart you didn't know was there about that particular individual or about this particular kind of people or whatever it might be. And it's so, the problem is this, it's so packed with self-righteousness. And I, I think we need to hear the Lord say, to do you do well to be angry? <laughs> There's a lack of pity, a lack of care that we can have. For the city. And just look at, there's a few things I want to just point out about Jonah here, then I'm going to get onto the good news, right? He, sit, he sits out of the city, makes his little booth, and he's like, right, sits there and watches. It's so easy to put yourself outside of the place of need. I wonder what, I wonder what God will do. Rather than saying, I've been called to this city. I'm going to be in it and love it and serve it. I'm not going to be an observer. I'm going to be in it. I mean, part of that is what, part of the offering later. That's what you say. No, I'm in. This church is called to serve the city, to love the city. I'm in. Part, I want to be in it. Not sitting on the outside, what I wonder. Well, we can all do that. It, it's so easy, isn't it, to sit on the outside and look or observe or criticize rather than when you get into something, you realize, oh, this is more complex than I thought it was. 
Oh, this is, oh, this, okay, right. Oh, this is more nuanced than I thought it was. And as you get among the people of the city and you get to know them and you hear about their lives and their stories, you think, gosh, Lord, have mercy on how judgmental I was. I had no idea what you've been through. Compassion can begin to grow. Because it's no longer nameless, faceless, just this kind of blob. It's people. And you realize what they've been through and you realize their story. And while these things never excuse bad things, I tell you what, I want compassion, don't you? <laughs> I need compassion, don't you? And the church, as the body of Christ, is called to be an expression of compassion to the place where it is. And I don't think you can be compassionate if you're on the outside looking in and observing. Because you never really get into the real battles people are living with and the real struggles and the things that have shaped them into some of the stuff that they now struggle with. So sitting on the outside is something that can hinder our engagement. Second thing, we laughed about it, but in building his own house. In the, in, in, in the book of Haggai, the prophet says this, speaking on behalf of God. They've built themselves, all, they're better than Jonah, they've built themselves nice houses, but the house of God was in ruins. And God says to them, is it a time, Haggai prophesies, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord, consider your ways. And he, he says, no, come on, you've, you've sorted yourselves out, fine. What about the house of God? What about the house of God? You see, the whole theme of the house of God throughout the Bible, I mean, it's such a wonderful study. But essentially what it's saying is, is, that, is that God who fills all things and can ever be contained by anything we build. But he has chosen to live among us by living in us. Amen? By calling a people to himself that he indwells. So that each of us, as we get born again, we become a temple of the Holy Spirit. But we also become a living stone connected to other living stones. And together in that, we become a dwelling place of God. A place where he will manifest his presence and show what he is like through his people. Amen? That's the whole idea with the house of God, that you can welcome people home and that as they become connected to the church, they find the one whose home it is, which is God himself. You see, a home will tell you a lot about people, right? You get minimalists and you get hoarders. Who are the minimalists in the room? Who are the hoarders in the room? <laughs> There's more hoarders than minimalists. And it's funny, the hoarders were somehow prouder about it. That was an interesting one. There was some shame around minimalism. The hoarders were like, yeah! That was great. We have, we have what I describe as a lived-in home. None of us in my family are natural tidiers. None of us. So you're pulling your hair out about, you know, how could you leave that pile of stuff there? And at the same time, the other person's looking at the pile of stuff you left. But a home, will, a home and the atmosphere of home will tell you a lot about the people that live there, right? The decor. When I was young, I'd visit my nan's house. She had lots of those little porcelain animals. Remember those porcelain animals? I used to think they were ridiculous. And then I turned 50. And I remember thinking, do you know what? <laughs> I get it. I'm not at a stage of buying any yet, but I think, no, I get it now. I would like a little squirrel at one point <laughs> on one of my shelves. It just happened. It just happened. It's a, you change. But the point is, you go somewhere's home, you know, you know, it tells you their values, it tells you what they're, what they're like, what the things that they love and care about. When you come into the church, the idea is, is that people get a sense of what God is like. No one said amen. 
You come in and you go, wow, look at the love. God is love. Look at the holiness. These people, there's something different going on here. That's what holy means, to be set apart from the common. God is holy, holy, holy. These people, they love righteousness. God is a God of righteousness. These people are faithful. They're faithful to one another in their relationships. God is faithful. You see, the home speaks of the one who owns it. And I want to... I, I wanna, just it continue to exalt us to invest in the house of God, to invest in the church. Why? Because the church is what will display to this city what God is like and what will be the welcoming instrument of God to the lives of many men and women in this city to show them the gospel, to hold forth the gospel and to draw people into the life of God and to welcome them home. And you can get caught up in our own little house and our own little thing. When David was sitting in his palace and he was like, oh man, look at where I live. God's got a tent. God says to him, I love what's in your heart. I love that you noticed. I love that you care. It's not going to be you that builds a temple. That'll be your son Solomon. But I love that you care. You've got to care about the house of God. Amen. And then the final thing I want to draw on before we just bring it to land, is that Jonah got stupidly attached to the plant. Anyone notice that? Even God says, it's only, you only had it a day. And you want to die because it's gone. The plant, follow me here, the plant was what we might describe as a temporary blessing from God. Yeah? We, the Bible says that all good things come from above. So everything that's good in your life is from God. Amen. Yeah? Now, some of those things are eternal blessings, forgiveness of sins, adoption, redemption, cleansing from the shame of the past. That stuff that's never going to be taken away from you. That stuff, that's ours forever. The gift of the Holy Spirit who affirms that we really are children of God. The love of God poured into our hearts. God's eternal blessings. But then there's all of these temporary blessings. They're good things. They're from the Lord. A nice holiday is from the Lord. Good people in your life, it's from the Lord. They're great. There's nothing, you're never to you know, be ashamed of that. It's God's blessing in your life. But these things are temporary. And we can get too attached to those things at the expense of these things. Jonah was not really attached to the heart of God, as he should have been. But he's attached to the plant that God gave him. And one of God's dealings with Jonah is to try and pull his heart away from being too attached to that, in order that he might find for himself a treasure that will last forever, which is the likeness of God, the transformation into the image of God, carrying the heart of God, these eternal things. And I would just put this before you as a challenge. One of the things that can hinder us from giving ourselves, whether it's time or energy or our gifts or financial resources, or wherever it is, into the eternal purposes of God, is that we are overly attached to the temporary blessings from God. It's great because the Bible says God gives us good things for our enjoyment. Yeah, there's no shame with any of that. But we've always got to keep an eye on our heart, haven't we? Say, Lord, make sure that my heart is actually attached to the things that last forever. Jesus said, where your treasure is, 
that your heart will be also. This, it's, a, it's a weird thing how it works. The whole thing of giving, whether it's time or whatever, just the whole thing of giving is that you want your heart to be in the thing so you can give with integrity, right? But also, as you give yourself into the things of God, your heart follows. So there's a strange kind of thing going on where you're sort of going, sometimes it's the most wise thing in the world to do, to simply give of yourself to the things of God and the purposes of God. Even when your heart doesn't feel like it, why? Because you know in doing so, guess what? As you invest yourself in the things of God, your heart follows. And you, you get to that point where you're like, wow, I've given so much to this, my heart is just there now. But then also it has this other kind of element to it where you also want to say, Lord, change my heart so I care more about the things you care about. And uh, in just a moment, Toby's going to come up and, and uh, lead us in the offering and the band are going to come up as well in a moment to just lead us in a bit of praise as we do that. But I want maybe just to just have a, just a quick moment to be able to respond in our hearts. We live in an age of anger. There's more and more anger around. There's more and more... People are panicking because what's happening in the world. Things that people used to put their trust in are dropping like flies. And so in that sense, there's a lot around of panic, anxiety, and anger. I think there's a good opportunity today to be able to say, Lord, I'm not going to allow myself to get caught up with things in that kind of way so I become enslaved to that when I could be caught up with things that will last forever. Lord, help me where I've become a bit of an observer on the outside. And as a result, my compassion is gone and I, I'm not really involved with people. I don't, you know, I, I'm not in the thick of it anymore in the city. I'm just kind of sitting out watching. Lord, I spent a lot of time building my own house, whatever that might be, when actually, Lord, your house, the glory of the church, the glory of what it represents and what it means. I've, I've got a bit skewed there. Or, Lord, I've got so attached just to the, the temporary blessings that you give that, Lord, I've lost sight of the eternal glory and goodness that will never be taken away from me, that will never be taken away from me. And just a chance to just have a bit of a moment before God. So just, why, don't you just, why don't you, the Bible talks about drawing near to God. And what that means, basically, is just in your heart, that you make that decision not to harden your heart, not to keep yourself at a distance out of fear or whatever, but that you, you sort of, you allow yourself to want to hear God's voice. You allow yourself to kind of, I suppose, like, be vulnerable, isn't it? Like any relationship where you go, get close to someone, you say, yeah, Lord, here's my heart. Here it is. And why don't we just kind of just take in this moment. The Bible says, even though you can't see him, the Bible says, you believe in him and you're filled with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. Yeah, we know we can't see him with our eyes. God is spirit. But he is more real than anything we can see with our eyes. So as we just draw near in this moment, reverently, I'll, I'll just lead us in prayer. And you, you do whatever you've got to do in your heart to... Respond to God in, in this prayer. Father, thank you that we haven't, as we were singing earlier and hearing earlier, we haven't got to spend our life pretending that we're good enough, 
Thank you so much for that. I'm so grateful that you have released me from trying to show everyone how righteous I am when I'm not. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the mercy that you've shown and the compassion that you've had on me and us and the love and that you've moved towards us in love even when we didn't care or weren't interested. Thank you for that. And Lord, in moving towards us in this way, it's so you can have a people for yourself that love you, are committed to you, are running with you, are partnered with you. And we just want to say yes and amen to you today. We want to say yes and amen. We're all in. We're all yours. We want to follow you. We want to give ourselves. We want to love you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. Help us to step in if we become observers on the outside. Help us, Lord, to care about your house as we are part of it as a living stone. And help us, Lord, to treasure more and more your eternal blessings that will never be taken from us. And transform us into your image, Lord, so that we look less and less like Jonah and more and more like Jesus. I pray that in his precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.